should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist on the Michelle Miao Show. Welcome to Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, where we bring people from different backgrounds and cultures to talk about race. I'm sitting here with three of my favorite people, Michelle Miao, Kate, Kate Kendall, and Ceci Alfonso. And uh, Michelle is our producer, and I'm going to have Kate and um, Ceci introduce themselves. So, Kate, would you just give us an introduction? Who are you, and what's your background? Sure. Half, I'm really happy to be here, Sima, and in this conversation. My name is Kate Kendall, and I'm executive director at the National Center for Lesbian Rights, based right here in San Francisco. I've been at NCLR uh, for 23 years, 21 years as uh, leading the organization, but I'm not from the Bay Area. I was originally raised in um, my home state of Utah um, for most of my life, up until I was 35. Um, I was raised Mormon in Utah, and like almost every other Mormon, uh, I am white and uh, grew up in a very homogenous uh, state and in a homogenous uh, sort of way of being. So coming to the Bay Area was really um, one of the most fantastic experiences of my life, and my life has only been enriched by being around so much difference and diversity. Thank you. Ceci, let's go to you. Uh, hi, I'm Ceci, and thank you again, Simma, for allowing me to share my perspective. Uh, I am a Puerto Rican uh, Cuban. Uh, those were my parents. Uh, Afro-Puerto Rican Cuban uh, social worker who has uh, uh, been active all my career. Um, I uh, began my professional uh, career as a master's level social worker who started a consulting company that provided uh, criminal lawyers with life investigations on individual charged with capital cases. So I come to you very aware of how there needs to be an ongoing conversation about race in light of the fact that so many people are incarcerated because of their color and not because of their crime. Thank you. Well, race has always been a big topic in the United States, and even though sometimes it's the topic is we shouldn't talk about race, we're post-racial. But since Charlottesville, especially, issues of race have increased in mainstream media and everywhere else. So we have racist white supremacists, we have Nazis, people in the anti-racist movement. Uh, how do we talk about race? So I'm going to ask both of you, what is the best way to start talking about race? Kate. Well, I think it's to have it be an everyday conversation. I mean, I think we should talk about race in the same way we talk about any other identity or any other um, way of being uh, or uh, uh, priorities in one's life, whether it's uh, you know educational background or religious background. I think not talking about race or, or having particularly white people say they don't see race um, diminishes and demeans particularly people of color. And I think I really feel like as a white person, it is incumbent upon me uh, to understand that, especially in this country now, uh, and I think obviously Charlottesville ignited a lot of this, but clearly white supremacy, our failure to deal with uh, white supremacy of the past, our fail to, failure to deal, deal with structural racism, our failure to deal with how this country was built on the backs of African slaves, 
our failure to re- our failure to really grapple with that and have honest conversations about it has led us to this moment. I mean, the chickens have really come home to roost, and I think it's incumbent upon white people, especially to invite and insist on this conversation because frankly, I mean, I don't wanna speak for Ceci or any other people of color, but the black folks I know particularly are exhausted and traumatized by what they've had to live through pretty much their entire life, only magnified by events of the last few years. So I think it's a conversation I try to have with somebody around something, uh, whether it's something NCLR is doing or in individual conversations um, every day, multiple times a day. And let me just ask this question. It impacts you personally, doesn't it? I mean, why is it? Tell, tell us a little bit about how it, this impacts you personally. Well, it's important to know, although this is a part of my biography, this isn't why I consider myself an anti-racist uh, activist. This isn't why this is an important issue to me. But obviously, you know, it, 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 it is part of my family. My, my wife is African-American. We have two biracial kids. So I live every day understanding, seeing through their eyes, um, what it means to be a person of color in this country. And I've become very aware, particularly with all of the extrajudicial judicial killings of unarmed, uh, mostly black men, but black folks generally, by police officers, that my white privilege will not protect my son. And recognizing that if only for my own self-interest and the interest of people I love, we must have this conversation and we must do better. But I'd like to think, and and Sandy, my wife, has said this before, that, you know, when people say, gosh, you know, Kate Kate seems to get this, you know, that must be your influence. And the greatest compliment my wife ever gave me was she looked at me and she and then she looked at them and said, oh, no, Kate does her own work. (laughs) And I think that's really important for white folks to do, regardless of how many people of color are in your life Mm -hmm. in a meaningful way. And definitely it enriches anyone's life to have people of all sorts of different backgrounds in your life. Uh, but but I'd like to think these are these are things I would care about regardless. Thank you, Ceci. Would you tell us? Well, go I, ahead. I I, um, I do think that uh, uh, well I ditto what uh, Kate has to say, but I want to add that I think it's particularly important uh, to talk about race and that white people talk about race. Is one uh, talking about race is something that people of color do the minute they wake up to the minute they go to sleep. I mean, if you if you uh, think that close to 85% of what we, <coughs> excuse me, what we communicate is done non-verbally, um, we are constantly communicated as a woman of color, constantly being communicated to uh, of our lack of our worthiness and the lack of resources. The other thing that I'd like to say is that I think it's particularly important um, that uh, white folks talk about race among themselves and with other people is because it punctures the structural fabric of racism in America. And let me say what and let me explain what I mean. In in this particular culture, it is assumed. Um, the assumptions and expectations are that only certain groups, uh, and I don't want to generalize, but that only certain groups of people have the right and privilege to speak about and talk about and challenge racism. Uh, if uh, historically um, the people who were given sanctions to go on television and talk about race were racist, out-and-out racists like those Nazis and Ku Klux Klan, in Charlottesville, um, and they would be sanctioned and uh, and given a space to perform and to reinforce racist attitudes. However, uh, in the general population, what average American white folks are uh, basically told in nonverbal ways that they should not talk about race, and if they do they are sanctioned and punished. Uh, and, the, and, it, and the proof of the pudding is the high risk, the anxiety that white folks feel when they are talking about race with other whites because it's a high-risk situation for them. They may be socially ostracized uh, and called, quote, a Negro lover. And the reason that that occurs because white folks are saying to other white folks, no, you cannot do it. You cannot talk about race. The only people who can talk about race are racists, 
and black people. Like Kate, I know you have a lot of discussions with people. How do you how do you talk about it and how do you educate people? You know, I, I thank you, Ceci, for that. I, I completely agree that part of the reason we're in the situation we're in now is because uh, white people have not spoken about race with other white people and that it feels like it's the conversation is so fraught. People don't know where to begin. And, and so I, I mean, as the conversations I'm having with white folks, most of the white folks in my circle are people who have done a lot of anti-racist work. They've had conversations, they've unpacked their privilege, they understand that moving in the world with race privilege is, a, is, is, is you can't ever escape it. You, if you're a white person in this culture, you have automatic privileges that people of color don't have, and there's nothing you can do about it. What you can do, though, you can't get rid of that privilege, but what you can do is acknowledge it and try to deploy it for good. So to, the, to Ceci's point, Yes, I understand that there is risk in raising these issues or in challenging someone. Someone in your circle, you're at a cocktail party and someone says something that, you know, I mean, we don't hear blatantly racist comments so much anymore, except we're hearing a lot recently. But there's something that's sort of vaguely uh, demeaning of people of color. And challenging that at a cocktail party as a white person to another white person can feel very fraught and can risk social ostracization. But to not do that means you're reinforcing your privilege and you're complicit in racism continuing. So, so I feel like uh, the most important thing for white folks to do is do some reading, do some self-education on privilege, on structural racism. Why is this issue being elevated now? Why has it come out so big? Why is there such an issue around policing in African-American communities? I mean, if you understand what it's like for, for blacks in Ferguson, to live in Ferguson, you as a white person would be outraged to have to be subjected to how, what black people are subjected to in Ferguson. So it's really, so when Mike Brown is killed, rather than, um, uh, than clucking and, and uh, targeting those who are uh, looting and, and, and rioting in the wake of Michael Brown's death and saying, well, that shouldn't be happening and that's wrong and that just goes to show you. No, what you need to ask is, but why? If a white person had to live in Ferguson for two weeks, they, I'll tell you what, they would be rioting in the streets. And so we just need to understand that there are systems that have been designed to keep people of color in their place, and it is a place that gives white people primacy and supremacy. And under, just understanding that and finding a way to unpack it, then beginning having conversations with that knowledge, I, I feel like white folks will feel better equipped and if we're not ready to have that conversation, we're not going to move forward. Hey, Ceci, yeah, and, go ahead. Ceci, Ceci here. I want to add to that to say that one of the, not only do you need to have a, unpack your privilege, but you need to share it because talk is cheap. If you have white skin, not if, you do, if white folks have white skin privilege, uh, then share it. And I'll give you a, an example of that. In New York City, uh, if I'm with a white person, it's 11.30 at night, it's raining, and I need, we need to get home. And it's raining and we're both getting soaking wet. I want you to use your white privilege to get that cab so we can both go home. But if you don't share those privileges and those resources, if you don't, if your white skin privileges allows you to buy a house in a particular community, and you don't say, hey, this is a redlining, uh, there are no people of color, then you can say all you want about how you hate racism, but you really are not doing anything to change its structure. Wouldn't you also say that it's, it's not just that, which is I completely agree, sharing that privilege, but the person who doesn't call that cab for you, it probably doesn't even occur to them that they're reinforcing white supremacy because that's the way it's always been. So interrogating how you operate in the world and, and just always thinking about scanning the landscape for how you're behaving vis-a-vis -vis people of color is a, 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 the honored practice of how you not just unpack but also share your privilege. Absolutely. Totally agree. Well, one question, one question I have, I think we're going we're to take a break in a couple of minutes, in a couple of seconds. But uh, what I want to talk about, because you, you raised the point of uh, sharing privilege, which I think is really crucial. 
So afterwards, I'm gonna, after the break, I'm going to ask you to comment on some, I will call them kind of like wimpy white people. I live in Berkeley. We have a lot of them. Kind of like wimpy white people who they don't think in terms of sharing their privilege. They're so guilty for what they think is privilege, they don't even think about sharing it. They just want to let everybody know that they don't have any. Instead of looking at, you know, you could use privilege for good or evil and how you could use it for good. So I want to ask you both to comment on that after we take our break. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play, watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook, and when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, again on the Michelle Meow Show with everyday conversations on race for everyday people. And joining me in the studio today is uh, Kate Kendall and Ceci Alfonso. And we are talking about race, racism, white privilege, and sharing privilege or using privilege for good and evil. So my question before the break was, because Ceci had talked about the importance of sharing and using, using privilege for good, what would you say to some, I call them wimpy white people, who are so guilty about having privilege, they refuse to acknowledge it, and want to do everything they can like to give up privilege, you know, like give up their houses, live on the street, or whatever it is that they want to do so that they could act like they don't have any privilege. So what would you say about those people, Ceci? Well, uh, I don't, as a woman of color and a Latina, uh, I am not asking nor do I expect um, white people to leave their houses and move out into the street and move into... Um, marginalized uh, communities. What I do expect wimpy people to do is to, when it comes time to um, pay taxes and uh, putting money into a public school for African American and Latino and all marginalized people, to stand up and say, yeah, I'm willing to be taxed another dollar so to make sure that those kids go to school. I'm willing to uh, stand up and fight against the highway that divides the community. Uh, but uh, that's what we need. And, and uh, guilt, uh, guilt does nothing for me, and it does nothing for the community. It may raise your anxiety level, and you may want to eradicate it because it's an uncomfortable feeling, but uh, it, 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 it also paralyzes you, and it's also a refuge for passivity. And so uh, I say, forget about guilt. 
I don't need I don't need guilt. I need action, commitment, responsibility, and response. Well, I agree with all of that. Completely ditto everything uh, Ceci said. I also think it's important. Um, not not only is guilt paralyzing uh, and completely unproductive, um, but it's it's a misplaced reaction. Uh, and, 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 and what it too often can lead to is in order to absolve themselves of the guilt, white people of, of my generation, I'm 57, but white people who are living now or any white person who's lived since, you know, the 1950s will say, well, I had nothing to do with slavery. So why should I have to interrogate my own prejudices or biases? I'm not a racist. That's all there is to it. Racism was, or uh, slavery was bad. I agree with that. And they, that's sort of the end of the conversation for them. And it's, it's so much more nuanced. And so what we have to understand is, so feeling guilty and, and using that to say, that's as far as I'm going to go in the conversation because I had nothing to do with the worst of the worst of the things that this nation did um, a century ago, is, is not even an appropriate way to approach the conversation from my perspective. The appropriate way to approach the conversation is, what is it about living in current 2017 America that allows uh, racism to endure that allows communities that are primarily peopled with people of color to be destitute and ignored and uninvested in, uh, and that allows for policies that now have our prisons uh, housing many more people of color uh, than they should for crimes that, are, uh, that no one should be in prison for. Really just sitting back and getting out of your own bubble or your own fear of wading into this conversation I just, I really feel like education for white people is the key. You know, read some noted uh, black thinkers now who are writing, there's some, some amazing writing that's out there. You can read some amazing writing by white folks around white privilege. Um, and, and come to understand how it is that structural, there are structural barriers in place designed and intended to keep people of color down. There's no way a person of color can pull themselves up by their bootstraps because they weren't given any boots or straps. And that is what we need to understand. That's the culture we live in right now. And, and being willing to have that conversation and then think about what can you do about that? You can't do everything about it, but there are certainly small things that every single white person can do to help ameliorate structural racism and begin to dismantle the systems that continue to subjugate people of color. I also think that, um, you know, that one of the things that that, uh, and we have we have to talk about what's the role of people of color in this conversation at some point. Um, you know, is it our responsibility to educate uh, white folks? No, we're done. Uh, we've been doing that for you know since since we were brought over on a ship, uh, trying to let uh, the dominant group, not the majority, but the dominant white oppressive group of people letting them know that um, we're human beings and uh, we have a right to share in the wealth and the resources of this country, let alone the world. So, uh, but I do think that I really strongly believe that um, what many white folks can do is to begin to normalize the language that we use. So, for example, um, you know, uh, the code word, um, have white folks say things like, if you're describing someone who happens to be a person of color, to say that she is a tall black woman with nappy hair. That's the person you're going to meet. It's okay to say black. It doesn't mean you're racist. Uh, it does, it's crazy making, you know, there was a time here in this country where, oh, no, we couldn't talk about color verbally because we talked about it all the time. But, uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. If you use the language to describe people of color, say that. You know, it's okay. It's normalize it. And that would slowly change the structure of what's acceptable and what's appropriate. Um, you know, uh, refer to, oh, she's, you know, these are two women who are married and they happen to be of color. Um, you know, acknowledge it and share it and highlight it. It's okay. It's nothing wrong. It doesn't offend me. As a person of color, if you describe me as a black woman, 
That means you see me, not the not the way, not like oh no 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 for white folks. Oh no, you can't talk about race. They're gonna think I'm racist. That's not true. In fact, I believe that the majority, one of the ways in which people of color know that a white person has a consciousness about race and racism is because that white person, that white person, refers to people of color like who they are, and they are comfortable with that. That in that action itself communicates a comfort level. It enables a person of color to outreach and to continue the conversation. That's why that's important, since we all speak in code. If you have a white person who talks all around the fact that you are a person of color or that people of color, what that says to me, they're uncomfortable with it. One of the things that I do is, is when I teach, and I'll give you a very concrete example, and it affects people all the time, particularly in the criminal justice system. If an individual is charged with a criminal offense and the white person is the person who's charged, who is charging an individual of color with an offense, when they get on the stand and they describe uh, the defendant, they say, oh, he was a black man. Well, if you haven't had a history of talking about and being comfortable with the issue of color and looking at, at people of color, then... Uh, uh, a defense attorney can cross and say, well, when you say of color, what do you mean? Do you mean cocoa? Do you mean chocolate? Do you mean cafe con leche? Um, Especially if you have a defendant that says, I wasn't there. And I am, you know, I'm a light-skinned black person. That she's describing a dark-skinned person. I'm not the one who committed the crime. And I have seen many, many a white lawyer not being able to do that, not because they're incompetent lawyers, but because their cultural norm is not to acknowledge or discuss shade, color, etc. What about, we? I often hear this, when people say things like, well, you know, I'm just colorblind. So, Kate, how would you, how would you respond to that? My stepmom, who is uh, 81, uh, and, uh, you know, loves Sandy and her grandkids uh, to death. We were talking maybe two years ago and talking about Obama, and, and, and she said, well, you know, I just don't see race. And I know she was, she was well-meaning. What she was saying is, I don't allow someone's race to diminish who they are in my mind. And I said, you know, Mom, I, I know exactly why you, your impulse and what, but I will just tell you that to say that uh, communicates to me and to people of color that their race is not something you value. And it's not something that you don't see the full person because it's, there's something about their race that if you saw it would diminish them in your eyes. And she immediately, I mean, you know, this is a very smart woman, and she immediately said, wow, I... I'd never thought about it that way before. I totally see what you mean. I said, it is fine. When you talk to people to say that, you know, your uh, you know, stepdaughter is married to a black woman, you, that is, that is, there is nothing wrong with that. And to, exactly to Ceci's point, people want to be seen. I mean, you know, if someone's describing me and they know me and they know what I do, if they don't say she's a lesbian lawyer, then they're missing out critical information about what, and this is, I, I honor these things about myself. And so... I think, um, while I get the impulse, I think it should be corrected every single time it's raised, obviously, in the, in the most respectful and gentle way possible. Yeah, and also, when you say, oh, that white person or the black woman or, or whatever, you're not telling them anything they don't know. Like, I know I'm white. It's not a secret. You know, I mean, people know their, their skin color. So I, I would agree. I think that it is really important, but it also goes to... What I like to say is to educate, don't annihilate. So we need to educate people and look at where they're coming from as opposed to just say, you racist, blah, 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 blah. And I like what you said about you know that their intentions were not bad, but you stopped the conversation and you called attention. You educated. Ceci, how about you? Well, uh, let me just add to that by saying that... um there are so many acknowledging race um, is also 
efficient and functional. And what I mean by that is I may not know, I don't know Kate. And Simma, you're saying to me, hey, Ceci, you're going to meet Kate on 42nd Street. Well, you need to tell me that Kate is a white woman because that would help me find her. That's like saying, describing an Asian person and never telling me they're Asian. And I'm standing there waiting to meet someone I don't know. That would help a lot. It doesn't mean I'm racist. It doesn't mean you're bigoted. It doesn't mean you're whatever. It just it's descriptive. And we live in a culture where if you don't adequately describe how someone looks like or is, it's crazy making. And you know, and the um, at one time in this country, we were very race conscious, very slavery, Jim Crow. And then we went into, oh, no, we're not the race conscious, which is ridiculous. We are. We just don't talk about it. We just don't say it. But it is there constantly. It's, it's, uh, we talk about race when you put in an application for a job and your name is Shaquita and they put your resume to the side. That's the conversation about race. It, dimin- it, it limits your ability to get a job. Um, so we're constantly discussing race. We just don't do it in a manner that I think is constructive and helpful in some ways, not totally. I don't want to generalize, but um, uh, I, I do think that uh, it would make the world a better place and it would help us a lot if we acknowledged it. And another example of the act of omission, if any, I don't know if you remember, um, I, I don't know how many of you saw um hidden figures. I mean, who knew that these black women even existed? I don't know if anybody uh, in your audience knows the movie in which these were scientists to help get um, the astronauts up to the moon. It was their mathematical computation that helped facilitate that. And no one knew that. And uh, we know the act of omission. And not acknowledging my race, or the race of other people, if not acknowledging a white person or a black person, is an act of omission. And history has shown us, as women, as lesbians, how the act of omission is destructive and demeaning. So uh, I think it's truly important uh, that we do that. Uh, I think that the how you do that, how you acknowledge that, is one of the best compliments that someone can have is to imitate them. And if I'm walking around, if Kate knows this, if she's around other white people and she refers to other black people or Asian people or talks about racism and oppression, it gives permission. She's a model for how other white folks can do that. Um, you know, my world is racially mixed. Uh, there are white people, Asian, black, and uh, and I think I serve as a model on how 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 to live a life that uh, we say we want, which is one where we're all equal. In my work, what, I mean, you know, I, I, my work is in diversity and inclusion, and sometimes people will say, well, why do we have to talk about differences? It just separates us. What do you think of the consequences in an organization or in a community of not acknowledging race? Well, one, I, like I said, it's crazy-making. We live in a multiracial, multi-ethnic world, let alone an American society. And to stand there and not to acknowledge that verbally is crazy-making. Absolutely crazy-making. Um, like, oh, and I'm you sorry. see it very, very early. I'm at the airport. A mother says to a, a baby, says to my, oh, ma, there's a, there, who's that lady? She's black. And mother, she well, what you're teaching that child is that it's inappropriate, unacceptable, and something's wrong. Well, I am black. Really. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong in saying, you know, sweetie, there are more people like that one in the world than people like us. But we're all the same underneath. That's all. You're teaching the child to be comfortable with differences. The upshot of not welcoming a conversation about differences is this reflexive reaction you sometimes see where people say let's not talk about differences because it feels like the third rail it feels like a dangerous conversation 
rather than celebrating and honoring differences, which should be the conversation from the time, you know, where you're a very young person. So it is very true that particularly for white folks in this culture, we have to unlearn a tremendous amount of, of garbage and toxic sludge that we've been shoveled uh, or acts of omission that don't include the stories of contributions of people of color. And in some ways, we, we have to re-educate ourselves and unlearn the everyday constant racism, uh, reifying privilege that as a white person in this culture, you get from the time, you know, you take your first breath. What I've seen in organizations, and I'd like to know if, if you've seen something similar, that when people, people say, well, I don't want to feel like I'm walking on eggshells, so I don't want to talk about it. But by not talking about it, people end up walking on eggshells. And I know oftentimes, like, I'll see, like, white people just pretend that they don't see people of color because they're afraid to address any kind of differences, so they don't address it at all, and everybody's walking around freaked out. Have you, have you noticed that? And let me let add, you know, it, the worst, it's, uh, I think it's uh, a tool to not do anything. It's a rationalization. Oh, my God, I don't want to be called a racist. Okay, so what? I mean, you know what? That's probably not it is a bad thing, but it's not the worst. You can live with it. And if you respond by saying, hey, I can understand that you, you think that I'm a racist, but I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to understand. That takes, to, on some level, you're making an effort. And that is much more than a lot of other people do. So... Anytime I hear, oh, no, I feel bad, I don't want to talk about it, I, blah, blah, blah. it's like, no, 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 that's a, no, that, that's a cop out. I agree with that, and I also feel like it is probably, for me, the most um, irritating uh, mm -hmm. expression of white privilege for white people to say, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to have that conversation, I'm uncomfortable with that conversation. The whole concept of white fragility that... that um, that white people don't want to be confronted with conversations about race. And I realize we're speaking in generalizations, but obviously we've got a problem in this country and it's very widespread. So I think generalizations are appropriate and to some degree. But white people who don't want to have these conversations because they're made so uncomfortable by these conversations, that in and of itself is an expression of privilege. Because to Ceci's very first point, black people, people of color every single day from the moment they wake up to the time they lay their head on the pillow, at the end of the day, are faced with a race conversation, a race, a racialized experience in this country with every single encounter, from the ticket agent at the airport to the clerk behind the 7-Eleven. Um, it, it is an exhausting way to live in a nation that doesn't welcome a broad and vibrant conversation about our race problem in this country and what we're going to do about it. So you're talking about like white people doing their education, but isn't it? And what do you, when, when I isn't it a little bit of white privilege to have white people just sitting around talking to other white people about white privilege? I mean, isn't that kind of white privilege? Because then they don't have to talk or get to know people of color, um, or maybe even be called on maybe saying something might be inappropriate, or or they have to deal with the uncomfortableness or awkwardness of developing relationships with people with people who are different. What, what do you think about that? Well, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. I mean, I think white people should have conversations with white people about white privilege, and then what they learn from that conversation engages them in conversations and meaningful work to dismantle racist structures with people of color. So I think these two, but I think, if, I think it's hard to have meaningful, effective, productive conversations about white supremacy and structural racism in this country with people of color without an honest conversation about one's white privilege. And I think that conversation, having that conversation with other white people where you learn from each other, and it may be a, a safe space to have that conversation before you engage in that conversation with people of color, you know, might be the first step people take. But boy, that's no, that's not the end of the journey by any means. Absolutely not. I, you know, um, people will say, if you're around, if you're a white person and you're around uh, people of color. We talk, we verbally talk about race all the time. We do. Oh, my God, I have to go for this job interview. Oh, God. Uh, a perfect example is, well, I better speak my standard English because they'll think 
you know, if I don't, they'll probably think I'm, I'm dumb or um, a killer or something like that. So we are constantly having to compensate or take into account our race when we interact with buying anything or, uh, or an example of uh, just a very simple example of my choice of a dog. I mean, I chose a mixed-breed dog as opposed to a Rottweiler because it was pointed out to me that I was living in a block where I was the only black woman, and walking around with a huge dog would be intimidating for white folks. I mean, from making a decision where you're going to live to what kind of dog you have, what kind of education you're going to get, and what kind of employment you get, you're going to get. And if you are a black, multicultural, lesbian feminist, I mean, forget it. And I have to tell you, I ended up getting a mixed-breed dog. Issues like white privilege and, and sharing privilege. And for many people, you have to be at a certain level where you're willing to, to think about that and understand it. What, but what about talking to somebody who's white, who's you know, maybe a good person, but doesn't really understand white privilege? Maybe they're not ready for that conversation. How do you neutralize that person? Well, because I mean, they could go I, I, either way. Well, I, I mean, I would never accept one's for someone's first response that they don't accept they have privilege as the only answer. I mean, I, I think for a white person, I mean, I definitely, and I, you know, you, we saw an undercurrent of this in what's happening um, in current events politically and with the Trump administration and the rise of white nationalism and white supremacy. You have poor white folks who don't believe they have any privilege and who believe that there's only, the, the, the sort of bucket of rights and protections is limited. So therefore, if people of color, who they deem their inferiors, get any of those rights or benefits, that's gonna take something away from them. And first of all, that's a lie. Uh, it's, it's a lie that is perpetuated by, um, by systems in power to keep white poor folks as enemies of, uh, of black folks generally and people of color generally. And, and, and what it requires is, it, this is not something you can do in like a 15 minute conversation or even a two hour session. This is, this is going to have to be a national conversation over the course of a very long period of time that you, you, know, you take, you take a, the coalition of the willing and then you reach people who are a little, are uncomfortable with what they're seeing in Charlottesville and places like that and uncomfortable with the rise of white nationalism and you bring them along. And then at some point you have a conversation with people who are much more resistant. But by this point, hopefully the nation, we've, you know, we've been able to move the conversation along a little bit and you can bring those people along. I, I'm never one to accept someone's first reaction as the end of the conversation, and particularly when it comes to something like white privilege. I think you could sit any white person down, even if they were a poor Appalachian, um, you know, uh, uh, not very well educated uh, in terms of formal education farmer, and sit them down and walk them through a conversation of how privilege operates in this country, and you could probably get them to a place where they'd be like, you know, I, I, I see your point. They might not agree that they're, you know, a part of structural racism, but it, it's not very hard to demonstrate how white privilege and white supremacy permeates so much of the structures of how um, we operate as a nation. Yeah, and uh, uh, ditto on that. And also, um, we're, we're creatures who, to survive, have to always ask, what's in this for me? And for whites, it has, they've had um, resources and privileges that people of color obviously do not have. That is why it's been so effective. Uh, from the moment that we had indentured servants and they were white and they were given um, uh, privileges and uh, people of color were not, and they were turned into slaves, that was the beginning of class and race privilege in this country. And it's continued to this day. And one of the things I think we have to do is to say, which corporate America is learning reluctantly, is that it's in your best interest long-term 
to collaborate, to acknowledge, and to share your resources because that's going to ultimately make your life better. And I'll give you an example of not buying that. We're currently living in a country where um, because of racism and classism, you have white people who are supporting um, a government, current government, that has that in the long run doesn't have their interest at heart. When we talk about eradicating health care and recording, record, you know, jobs and all that, what white folks are told, hey, you know, those people who come over there are taking everything away from you, when in fact their pockets are being picked, their health care is being taken away, and what is blown in front of their face is a bright light of racism and uh, xenophobia, uh, homophobia, anything in America that says these other are taking something away from you, but you have white skin privilege. We, a cop, will never, in theory, stop you and shoot you. You've got that privilege because you're white. Thank you both for getting uh, close to the to the close of the uh, show. But I'd, I'd also like to mention, going back to the 60s, there was a white group called the Young Patriots that worked with the Black Panther Party, and they were actually one of the people who helped found them were members of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. And the way that they did that was to see these were poor white people who had potential to be very racist, but they had people from the Black Panther Party attend one of their meetings and show them how it was in their interests also Correct. to work together. And it became a very strong coalition called the Rainbow Coalition. Actually, we're going to have one of the members on in uh, one of our future shows. So I like what you said about that it's in, we have to show people that it's in everybody's interest because we are in the world, we're in this country, we have communities, and everybody, and it's in everybody's interest to fight against racism, not just people of color, but white people too. Because we want to have a better country and a better community, everybody needs to be able to work together. And when racism stops us from working together, it impacts everybody. One of the, 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 the cancer, the cancer of racism and the myth of class and race privilege um, is so insidious that there are many in this country who feel that ultimately that's what's going to destroy this country. We are 34th in math. Uh, countries that have other individuals that are striving for education, think about this. We have all this brain power who happen to be in the, in the heads of people of color in prison when we could be having the inventions of all kinds of anti-diseases, all of these people are just wasting away, and we cannot afford it. What some people do not understand is that many of us, many of us people of color and white, are fighting to eradicate racism out of patriotism, out of our love for our country, because we see how horrible it is. Collectively, it's going to destroy us. It will ultimately, in the end, destroy this country because we will not be able to compete. You cannot have a society where a significant number of its brain power is underutilized. Thank you. And that, that sums it up. If we really are patriotic, we want to make a better country for everybody where everybody can show their genius. Thank you so much. I hope that uh, I enjoyed having both of you on my show, and I hope you'll return. It was an honor and a pleasure. Thanks so much, Sima. And you too, Ceci. Same here. Take care. Thank you very much, Sima. Bye-bye. And that concludes the special discussion on race. To find out more about Sima Lieberman, head to SimaLieberman.com or find her on Twitter. She's Sima the Inclusionist. To end the show, I'm going to play just some clips that we had done previously about what people are saying regarding resistance. And what I mean by resistance is resisting Donald Trump. Here's what people had to say. I really see history as a site of activism for me. I, I think that my mom taught me about my own history for me to be proud to be Asian American during a time in the 70s and 80s when you, you, know, you, you weren't told to be proud. 
she made a point to talk about how we were Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II. That was our legacy as a people. And also that uh, I was Okinawan, colonized by the Japanese people. I think one of my first, I would consider, acts of public kind of activism was uh, submitting an essay when I was 10 years old. And uh, it was about sort of my identity and, and justice and how we need to be kind to each other. And, uh, you know, the government is evil because it incarcerates difference. After Trump got elected, we were so devastated. I know that a lot of students were totally destroyed. But what I like to remind people is that conservative backlashes happen during times of great social and political change. I think that there's a way in which the left has now become center, and so there's this renewed reaction. There's a way in which every time an act of injustice happens, there's this upsurge of popular support that wants to overturn it. That's kind of incredible. Like, we never see such mainstream support against injustice. Uh, so in that way, I have great hope. Uh, I also think that the rise of conservatism today reminds us that we can never be complacent. You know, I'm in ethnic studies and, and I'm in the College of Ethnic Studies. We never believe at San Francisco State that we should ever be complacent. But uh, what's kind of cool is that the, the rest of the world who may have been sleeping have kind of woken up. My work is all about debunking myths around race, um, destigmatizing sexuality, right? putting a face on an Asian-American queer. I consider myself part of the radical left. Um, I think that people might see me as an educator, as an associate dean in a public institution, and that seems pretty mainstream and conservative. But I do think that my job is to support uh, folks in the margins. And for that, that means faculty of color at San Francisco State University. It means queer students of color at San Francisco State University, and it means queers of color throughout the community in the Bay Area. I don't think that anything necessarily will change. I, I do feel uh, inspired by all these, you know, uh, activists, queer activists who are, who are doing things, right? It's, it's also super moving for me to see so many folks of color out there, you know, rallying, creating coalitions, right? If anything, I feel more inspired to continue doing the work, seeing how other folks are uh, also engaging and being excited and galvanizing themselves towards political change. was murdered in 2002, my dad pointed out on the TV screen, he said, this is about a trans girl, she's 16. And I was watching and you know, they were saying that they had to kill her because um, they found out she was trans. And to me, it just, I internalized that in such a deep way because I thought it could have been me, that should have been me but I was still here and I was gonna do something about it. Um, so I turned all that anger toward myself and uh, really started to make a concerted effort to stand up for our rights as trans people. Twenty sixteen was marked as the deadliest year for a trans woman of color and primarily black trans women. And I can't say that I'm unafraid. I can't say that I'm courageous. What I can say is that it's a frightening environment to be in and I have a choice to make. I can sit back and just continue to watch this happen or I can do something about it. And so many of us don't even have that option. I have family support. I have a huge network of community that supports me. And many of us don't have that. So it's not by my own strength that I'm able to stand up and fight against the genocide and advocate for social justice, for our human rights. I have a lot of privileges that help me to do that. I am afraid that the current administration is currently enacting violence against 
queer people, LGBTQ, the whole spectrum. Um, they're making it more challenging for any of us to have the rights that we deserve as humans. And it's enraging. It can be deflating. There are moments when I feel so afraid for us, but I know better. This is just a phase in our culture. And I believe that love always um, surpasses this evil and uh, lack of care for other people. I've lived long enough to know that we can make it through anything. We're very resilient. And, you know, I, I've said it in public and, I'll, you know, I'll say it here, fuck Trump. I have nothing in common with his values. And, you know, frankly, I don't think he has values. I think he's all about himself. And um, it's high time that our allies in the administration actually do something about it. Stop whining, stop saying impeachment, start doing something about it. Invest your dollars in that. Our lives are at stake. You all have privileges that we don't. Acknowledge that and do something. We can only do so much as people in the community. Um, we're already overburdened with, you know, just trying to survive. So put your money where your mouth is and support us and fight the current administration. When I was here in the 70s, when I first came here, and I was very involved in the movement politics, and one day I was standing in line in the Castro, waiting to get into a movie, uh, to see a movie, and I looked up and down the line, and I saw just people my own age, in their 20s and 30s, and it just struck me, really, like, like a bolt. Um, where were the seniors? Where were our elders? What had happened to them? Why weren't they with us? And I didn't know it then, but that was actually... Uh, a, a moment that would guide my activism for the next three and four decades. When we started out to build senior housing and senior services for the LGBT community, wherever I went, people would say, well, I never thought about gay aging. I never thought about the LGBT community getting old. We were just invisible. And to see how far we've come from then to now is extraordinary to me in my own lifetime. To see that LGBT seniors are visible, to understand in both our community and outside of our community the importance of embracing age and longevity and honoring and uh, not just taking care of seniors, but empowering uh, people and uh, celebrating life. It makes me very proud of all the people that I've had the opportunity and privilege to work with. It is scary and uh, frightening and disappointing is how I felt uh, after the election. And I think we all felt that way. It took us a while to recover, but I was so moved and inspired by the Women's March on Washington. I think we all were, and it gave us hope. Being around a little bit myself, a couple of decades, I know that it's not a straight line, that there's a lot of difficulties and challenges and mountains to climb. Um, that the important thing is to persist and to never give up and to keep pushing forward. But I think the message that I feel is most inspiring today is this is really an opportunity uh, that we have to create a more deeply and vital multicultural country than we've ever done before. I think what will come out of this is a deeper commitment to multiculturalism, a deeper commitment to a coalition that I think we see is building every day of people of color, of LGBT folks, of immigrants, working together, supporting each other. Because crucial to this moment is the understanding, not just about our differences, which we need to honor and celebrate and acknowledge, but also the interconnectedness of all beings and all life. And it's holding those two, two experiences or understanding together that will make us uh, a stronger country when we come out of this. I think it's very important that we remember to keep our lives intact, that we remember to, whatever we do, that we do it with a sense of adventure that can sustain us. So when 
when we do win back the government, when we have actually succeeded at what we're trying to do, that we're healthy, thriving people. So every day when you wake up, you need to think about how, what am I going to do today to make a difference? Am I going to write a letter, an email? Am I going to march? Going to make a phone call? But then also do your life. Do your life with joy and adventure so that we can all be there when the time comes. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com.